1: and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly.
0: From CAFE in the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Today is January 15th, 2024. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. To honor Dr. King, I wanted to focus on his iconic 1963 Letter from Birmingham Jail, a document that has called Millions to Action and Activism, in addition to being a profoundly beautiful piece of writing. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Claiborne Carson, to discuss the lyricism and legacy of King's letter. Dr. Carson is the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor and Professor of History Emeritus at Stanford University. In 1985, Dr. King's widow, Coretta Scott King, asked Carson to serve as the inaugural director of Stanford's King Papers Project, an effort to publish a definitive collection of Dr. King's writings and letters. The project eventually grew into the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, which Carson also oversaw for many years. He has written and edited many books on Dr. King and the civil rights movement, and in October, was honored with the National Civil Rights Museum Freedom Award. Dr. Carson, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you, Pret. So there are so many things to talk about when we remember and commemorate and celebrate the life of Dr. King. I thought we would we would bite off one thing, and that's his, his famous, iconic, I use the word, lyrical letter from Birmingham Jail, which... I've always thought of as a great piece of literature. Is it is it fair to call
2: it literature? I, I think so. It, it was written under unusual circumstances. He was in a jail cell, but, uh, but uh, it was definitely well written. You know, I think about the Nobel Prize and many people are aware of the
0: fact that Winston Churchill won a Nobel Prize. And when you ask them, they often think it must have had to do with World War II and he won the Nobel Prize for peace. He did not. He won the Nobel Prize for literature. And I've often thought, just not to overly belabor the point about King's writing ability, that he
2: might also have been a candidate for the Nobel Prize for literature. Is that an overstatement? I, I, I think that's something. I, I look upon him as somebody who was preparing for those moments when he could either give a great speech, like the I Have a Dream speech, um, or write a great document, like uh, letter from Birmingham jail.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, he didn't live nearly as long as Winston Churchill. He was, he was assassinated very young. He, he wrote letter from Birmingham jail when he was 34. And I will tell you, when I was a young person in middle school, high school, anyone over the age of 30, I thought was ancient. So it didn't strike me when I first was learning about Dr. King, how very young he was. And now now that I'm in my 50s, I find it rather extraordinary. How often do we have someone who is that young
2: and that mature? Not often, but I I think you have to explain him by by looking at his background. You know, He grew up his, his father was a, a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher you know uh, in some ways he's he's preparing for those moments all of his life even though he doesn't know what he's preparing for. He thinks he might just be preparing to be a good minister. Um, but I think that uh, when we look back we can see that uh, in so many ways his life was a preparation for those great moments of the of the 1960s and uh, when he Became the spokesperson for a movement.
0: So let's talk about the letter and maybe lay some foundation for it. So obviously, as the as the title suggests, he wrote it in while well, he was in jail after a protest, and he wrote it to respond to criticism from white clergymen about his protest tactics. Uh, he spends a lot of time in the letter criticizing and indicting the quote unquote white moderate my first question is before you you give us the sort of the background and the context for this is do you you find it at all quaint today for there to have been so much criticism of a nonviolent movement?
2: Not really. I I think you always see people who are saying, slow down, uh, be patient. Don't try to rush things. And, and I think it, it is one of the great dialogues of history of, you know, when is, when is the time bright? And uh, I, I think for him, uh, he had been, you know, Birmingham was the crucial point in his life. You know, I, I had the privilege of meeting Fred Shuttlesworth, and Fred Shuttlesworth writes him in the 1950s and saying, you need to come to Birmingham. Why? Because segregation is the strongest in places like Birmingham, and particularly in Alabama. And Birmingham is a strong point, and if you can break segregation there, you can break it anywhere. Now, King gets this letter, I think, in 1957, and he kind of puts it aside because he said, things are tough elsewhere. Uh, the last thing I want to do is, you know, the Freedom Riders went to Birmingham and they all got beaten up and, uh, you know, a lot of bad things. Your your own home, Fred Shuttlesworth, he would say, uh, they blew it up uh, while you were inside it. You were somehow that 1% of the people who can survive their entire house being blown up, and come out of it without even getting injured. So you, you've had a lot of luck, but uh, Birmingham is a dangerous place. It was called Bombingham in the movement yeah, because uh, uh, many of the segregationists knew how to use dynamite. Um, there was a lot of mining in, in Alabama. And uh, so a lot of the um, anti-integration activities were, involved blowing up people's homes if they moved into the wrong neighborhood, blowing up Shuttlesworth's house. Uh, so uh, ultimately, we we know later, bombing the 16th Street Baptist Church and uh, killing four young girls. So, um, so it was a very dangerous place, and Martin Luther King was hesitant to go there. Fred Shuttlesworth saying, you've got to come here. Um, Martin... Kind of fails to do very much in Albany, Georgia, and I think it's only after that that he he says, you know, I really have to respond to Fred Shuttlesworth trying to convince me to come to Birmingham, and in in that year he he makes his effort to bring the movement there. Uh, unsurprisingly, he gets a strong opposition. You know, that's that's the year that uh, you know the the governor of Alabama, George Wallace. You know, segregation now segregation tomorrow segregation forever uh he's he's the police chief there is a staunch segregationist uh, so he knows he's going to face a strong opposition and sure enough um, simple protests don't work they just throw people in jail when he comes there in April of 1963. and then he faces the problem of do I go to jail? And do I protest? And especially after he receives an injunction uh, saying that uh, if he goes to jail, he won't even have a trial. You know, one of the things about an injunction for anyone is that if you break it, uh, all the judge has to say, you broke my injunction, you're in jail until I let you out. So that's what happens. On, uh, it comes around Easter Sunday. You know, He decides he has to break the injunction. Sure enough, he's thrown in jail, and then he picks up the newspaper and finds out about this letter, this cautionary letter from the the white clergy in town, basically saying, "Be patient. We're we're with you. Yeah, go but, slow. Go slow. Uh, you're rushing things," and I think that that sets him off. Did it anger him, or or what do you think? Was he
0: was he patient?
2: I I think he he was angry um, because that. That was not what he would expect from his supporters. So I think he, he feels that he has to answer it. And, and by the way, no one else in, in his organization thinks, why are you wasting all this time? Uh, I, I worked for a long time with Clarence Jones, his lawyer. He came out to California, lived uh, out here for a while. And Clarence was, was saying that was his advice. You know, why are you spending so much time? And he told Clarence, look, I think I have to respond to this. And Clarence actually smuggled it out of the jail cell and brought it over to the Southern Christian Leadership Headquarters. And it was just written on whatever Martin had available, newspapers, scrap paper, whatever. And they, they actually put it together in, in that office.
0: Yeah, look, one of the best paragraphs ever written to my mind is in this letter and the most forceful answer he gives to the moderate white clergy who voice their criticism I'll just read a part of it he writes in a letter from Birmingham Jail we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor and then he says and this is the paragraph that I, I think I've read a thousand times
1: perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the sting dots of segregation to say wait but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters...
0: Describing the plight of black Americans in that time,
1: and he says... When you are forever fighting a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait.
2: Are there particular passages in that letter that speak to you? I think that's certainly one of them. And, uh, and I, and I think that that it's a, it's an answer that many people have given over the years, um, with respect to social change, you know, uh, People who understand the pain of discrimination are less patient with those who are saying, well, eventually it'll change. You're right. Stands to reason. Yeah. They, I, I think they're, they're the ones who are saying, look, we've, we've been waiting. Somebody's been waiting for a long time. And you can say that about today's problems. Many people have spent their lives under oppressive conditions. And we tell them, oh, be patient. Things will change. Uh, so I think it's a, it's that that kind of letter that anybody in a struggle, and particularly because he knows that Birmingham is the crucial place. That if he could win there, look at look at what happened right after the Birmingham campaign. President Kennedy decides to introduce civil rights legislation. Other people in the movement decide to have a march on Washington, and. Guess who they invite to give the concluding speech? It's Martin Luther King. If he had failed in Birmingham, do you think that would have happened? Fred Shuttlesworth was not even invited to to speak there. But Martin Luther King not only is given the final speech, but everyone else is limited to five to seven minutes. Bayard Rustin comes to him and says, you know, look, you're the final speech. You're not limited to five to seven minutes. If you want to go a little bit longer, you can, and no one's going to stop you. And that last half of his speech is the, I have a dream speech <laughs> you know, that if he, he would not have given that it was, we have the actual text of the speech that he brought up to the podium. It does not say we shall overcome. Yeah, And, and that's what made him famous. That was by the way, my first demonstration going to the march
0: that that was a that was a good inaugural demonstration for you to attend sir
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, good. it was good that i didn't think that all demonstrations would a, be like maybe that. <laughs> a little bit of a
0: letdown after that
2: <laughs> <laughs> right yeah
0: what's also striking to me in the letter and i should note for folks it's not book length but it's not short it's not a cable hit it's not a letter to the editor it's not an op-ed in a newspaper it's it goes on at some length and the patience with which despite his anger that you've described the patience with which he sort of explicates the reasons for his methodology of nonconformity and nonviolence, I find very striking. Because he understands the sort of philosophical paradox that he's engaged in. And he writes, for example, speaking of the clergy who criticized him.
1: You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with Saint Augustine, that an unjust law is no law at all
0: how do you think that explanation struck the ears of his critics
1: i think
2: eventually they were uh, embarrassed that they had questioned him you know it's interesting when i when i got to that point in the king papers and we had to get releases from all of the ministers and some of their offspring you know most of them had passed away but uh, the, their offspring were we're kind of embarrassed that our father or grandfather wrote this letter cautioning Martin Luther King. And I said, well, you know, yes, you have to understand that, but we have to print their letter because it helps explain his letter. And uh, so, so I think that this is something that has continued. And, and, you know, no one wants to be the last person to recognize injustice. You know, and no one wants to be the last person. At some to, point to say, people get on the bandwagon when they yeah, see where the, the wagon is going, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I think with that letter also, Martin Luther King, it, it didn't become famous immediately. He sent it to the New York Times and their first response was it's too long. We can't we can't, <laughs> right. we can't publish this. And uh, you know, other newspapers turned it down. And uh, so it was initially Published in some publications with very little circulation, uh, so it took months and maybe even years before people recognized how how important that letter was. And as you pointed out,
0: there are phrases that are used here that eventually became very famous and quoted. We've read some portions of it that are that are less well known, but one of the most famous. And I don't know if he coined it for this letter or if he borrowed it from someplace, but we all know it now. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And he goes on to say, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Did he have an awareness, do you know, of, I've now used this word twice, but I'll use it a third time because I think it is warranted, that his lyrical ability brought people along in the movement? Or was it a distraction in some way, his,
2: his style as opposed to his substance? Aren't you really just talking about what a good minister is? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not a person who goes to church often, but I've heard, you know, a number of ministers, some of them good, some of them not so good. But the ones who are good are the ones who say something memorable. Yeah, and it might be simply making you think about how do you make moral choices, and it's it's a difficult thing to do. You know, simply being religious, as as we can see from this example. The critics are religious people. So simply being religious doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make the right choice in all circumstances. And I I think we should remember that, that that it doesn't make you perfect. It just makes, it gives you a lot more tools to think it through. And, And I think that that's one of the things that gave King an advantage, is that that's what he had been doing throughout his professional life. It wasn't that long but you go back to his earliest speeches, and they all present people with moral choices. You know, he he's using religion as a way of teaching people how to make those choices. And that's something that's, that's quite different from uh, many ministers, uh, by the way. Yeah. Uh, not all of them have that mission.
0: Before we go, I just thought, since we are speaking for the holiday where we commemorate dr king and i think there's there's essentially unanimity about the value and merits of celebrating this person on this day but one of my earlier memories when i was growing up in the 80s when i started to become someone who watched the news and think about current affairs you want you want to remind people how tough a battle that was and how as recently as the 80s there were lots of people who did not think this person should be honored with a holiday
2: you know, I, I think that it's it's even more than that. It, it's, you know, one of the things that might be striking to many people is to understand that this had a political cost, you know, the, for the people who supported the civil rights legislation. The 1964 election was the last time that a majority of white Americans voted for a Democrat. Yeah. Uh, that hasn't happened since. And we have to think about that you know that it it's it's almost like uh, not only king paid a price he was assassinated but many people have paid the price of standing up for what they think is right and it's and it's a continuing process and uh, i think we need to think about that even in today's world that it it is sometimes difficult to make the right choice and stick with it that is absolutely
0: true on that, on that note dr carson Thank you for your scholarship thank you for all your work in keeping the legacy of dr king alive i commend letter from birmingham jail to anyone who hasn't read it and even if you have and it's been a while it's worth reading again thank you so much thank you for more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines become a member of the cafe insider Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The editorial producer is Noah Ozolai. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Nat Wiener, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.